All right. Well, that was fun. Good morning, you guys. I love that video. I just love in this series that not only do we get to gain knowledge of the Bible, but we also get to gain knowledge of lizards that spit blood out of their eyes. So thank you, Pastor Sam, for ensuring that we are just well-balanced people that have a great knowledge of all things in this world. Well, hey, I'm Pastor Peter. I'm one of the pastors here on staff. It is a great privilege and blessing to be able to share God's Word with you here this morning. So let me bless you real quick. Real quick let's open in a word of prayer, and we'll jump right into it. Lord God, thank you so much for this amazing opportunity that we have every week to just gather in your name and to worship you but also to be blessed by you. And I pray for an extra measure of blessing today, Lord, that you would encourage us, that you would strengthen us, that we'd hear directly from you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, a few weeks ago, my family and I, we decided to go on a quick vacation, right? We don't have a lot of time to play, but this was a quick overnight two-day vacation to Las Vegas. And so the reason for our trip was because our anniversary was right around the corner. It was going to be just in a few days. And then the next day after that, it was going to be our son Dawson's fourth birthday. And then some good friends of ours that we love spending time with, they were also going to Vegas that weekend. And so we thought this was just the perfect excuse to hop on a plane and to make a reservation and to get away. And so that's what we did. We made the reservation, we booked the hotel, and we made these plans to go and spend time a weekend in Las Vegas. And it was going to be a great time, a fun time. A couple of days by the pool indulging in those famous, exquisite Las Vegas buffets, taking Dawson to see the Bellagio Fountain, riding the gondola, letting him run around in the arcade, and best of all, letting him jump on the big hotel bed all night long. Oh, it was going to be a great trip. And so we packed our bags, and the next day we hopped in the car, we got out of work early, we closed the shop, we took Dawson out of school, and then we headed to Long Beach Airport, when like literally the minute we got into the car, what happens... I get a text message. It's one of those airline notifications. And you could probably guess what happened, what it said. It was that dreaded, unwanted notice that said, I'm sorry, but your flight has been delayed. And it was about a two-hour delay. We were supposed to leave at 2.50. I think it was like 4.40 was the new departure time. So we're like, okay, it's fine. No big deal. I mean, we only have two days there, so every hour counts, but it's fine. It's only two hours. We'll still go. We'll still have fun. We'll still go to the pool, buffet, all that stuff. So we went to the airport. We found a good spot in the waiting area. We were going to be there for a little bit, right? Got a snack, queued up a video on the iPad, and we started to wait. Well, a couple hours go by, and what happens? My phone buzzes again. I'm like, oh, this can't be good. So I take a look, and no, it's not good because it was another delay, And I think it was like another couple of hours. Apparently, there was some storm in Nevada at that time. Some of you guys might remember this. This was like uh, right at the beginning of this month. And so I said, I'm sorry, but your flight has been delayed again. And so now this time when I get this notification, it's not fine, right? I'm not as patient because I had already been at the airport for a couple of hours. And now being told I'm going to have to be there for another couple of hours with a not-yet-four-year-old who's cranky, hungry, and bored and wants to ride an airplane because he loves doing that. I mean, this was not the way that we expected to start our vacation. But we're already there, so we're like, okay, we'll just wait. And so the hours tick away. And as we're waiting hour after hour, we're just starting to wonder now at this point, are we even going to make it to Las Vegas, right? I mean, we were already supposed to be there at a buffet eating crab legs and prime rib. Now we're at this cold airport, uncomfortable seats. Is the plane ever going to come? And then we got our answer because I got one final text message. I take a look and what does it say? Canceled. We're working to rebook your flight. So we just went home. The trip didn't happen. 
And this experience that we had, this gut-wrenching experience of just waiting and waiting and waiting and experiencing delay after delay after delay, well, it sort of mirrors, it sort of reminds me of the kind of anticipation and expectation that the people in Jesus' day, or shortly thereafter in Peter's day, actually, the early church, that they experienced as they were waiting for Christ to return, right? As they were waiting for the Lord's second coming. Because like me and my family, they were also very excited. They were eagerly anticipating something. They couldn't wait for something to happen, and that was for Jesus to return. And the reason why they were so excited for this, why they were so uh, anticipating and expecting this, was because when Jesus returned, they knew what the apostles had said would happen. Now, he wasn't just stopping by to say, hello, hey, and then going back up to heaven. It was just a quick trip. No, he was coming, and he was bringing the fire. Right? I mean, he was coming and he was bringing something big, something cataclysmic, something catastrophic, something momentous. Because when Jesus returned, he was bringing judgment, ultimate and final judgment. He was going to eradicate all evil. He was going to bring an end to the world. He was going to restore and renew and make things right again. And so we got to remember for the people in Peter's day, they were a people who were suffering, Right? I mean, they lived in a sinful, wicked world. They were being persecuted for their faith and for their beliefs. And so this idea that Jesus is coming back to make things right again, well, that was a welcome sight, to say the least. I mean, this was the hope that they had. This was the fuel that they needed to continue to endure and to continue to believe in Jesus. And so they waited with expectation. But then the days went by. The weeks went by. Turned to months. Turn to years, turn to decades. And as they waited and waited and waited, we can understand why some of them became frustrated. They grew restless. Some of them even had doubts and questioned and wondered if maybe like my flight to Vegas, Jesus somehow, his flight had gotten canceled. Because he's not here. And what made things worse was, as we learned last week, when Pastor Sam took us through chapter 2 of Second Peter, false teachers had showed up on the scene. And these false teachers, these heretics, unbelievers, skeptics, they had come in and started stirring stuff up because they infiltrated into the churches, and then they were starting to plant these seeds of doubt into the believer's heart, saying stuff like, come on, you really think Jesus is coming back after all these years? Come on, we got to move on. We've got to give up this foolish way of thinking that he's coming back. Just live life. Live the way that you want to live, because that's what they were saying. Jesus isn't coming back. There's no judgment. There's no eradication of evil. There's no hell. So you might as well make the most out of your life here and now. So live. Drink whatever you want to drink. Eat whatever you want to eat. Sleep with whoever you want to sleep with. Indulge yourself. Pleasure yourself, because that's all that matters now. Jesus isn't coming back. And so the Apostle Peter, seeing the dangers of this teaching, the the, the perils of this heresy, he responds. And he responds in the passage that I want us to look at here together this morning. And it's in 2 Peter chapter number 3. That's where we're at. 2 Peter chapter number 3. Peter is responding to the dangers of this heresy, to these dangerous false teachers who are discouraging the people of the church. And Peter responds in three ways. There are three things that he says to rekindle their hope and their faith. Three things that he shows them. And those three things are this. Number one, he reminds them of who these false teachers are and what they've come to do. 
right? He warns them. He says, be on guard, look out, watch out for these guys. And then number two, Peter responds to them. He gives his rebuttal, his defense. He gives the reason why we can reject the things that they say. And then number three, he shows us why this matters to us, how this impacts us, how this affects our lives. So three things. He reminds them of the false teachers and what they say. Then he defends against their teachings. He gives his rebuttal. And number three, he shows why this is important, what the contemporary relevance or application is. So number one, the first thing that Peter shows to the believers in that time and also to us here today, he reminds them of these dangerous teachers and what they are saying. And he shows us this at the very beginning of the chapter, starting right around verse number three. So that's where we're going to read. Second Peter chapter three, verse number three. So in the first couple of verses, Peter has said, I'm going to remind you of something very important. I'm going to tell you some important truth that I want you to remember, because it's not just my words, these are God's words. And then he goes on and warns about these teachers. This is what he says, verse number three. Above all, you must understand that in the last days, scoffers will come, and they will come scoffing and following their own evil desires. And they will say, so, where is this coming that he promised? Ever since our ancestors died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. And so Peter here gives this warning. Look, guys, at the end of time, in the last days, which we are in right now, these scoffers will come. And they will come to deride you. They will come to discourage you. They will come to demoralize you, to bring you away from Jesus Christ. Because that's what they're doing. They're scoffing. They're ridiculing. They're mocking. They're making fun of the Christians. And we see how they're doing that. In verse number four, they say, where is this coming that he promised? Now that, my friends, is not a genuine question that they're asking. They're not curious. When's Jesus coming so I can prepare my heart for his return? No, it's a question dripping with sarcasm, right? It's kind of like when I'm getting dressed for church and my wife sees me struggling to put that last button on, on my pants. And then she asks, so when are you going to the gym? So how's that diet you're on going right now? When are you going to start working out? Right? Those aren't like genuine questions where she's trying to get information. But what is it? It's sarcasm. It's saying, it ain't looking so good. It's not, like, it's not looking like you've been dieting or working out. And that's sort of the idea here that these guys are doing, these false teachers. So where is this coming? The point is he's not. Right? And then they go on. They double down on this. The rest of verse 4. Ever since our ancestors died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. So what's going on there? Well, these false teachers are saying why it's so dumb for them to wait for Jesus. Because they're saying, hey, look at all of history. Just look. Go back to when our ancestors were there. Go back to creation. And what do you see? You see that every day has come and gone. Every year has come and gone. Every generation has come and gone. And guess what? God hasn't done anything differently. It's all the same. Every day is the same. Look at history. There's no remarkable acts. There's no judgment, no catastrophe, nothing momentous. Every day is the same. And so essentially what they're saying is, if God has never done anything like this before, why are you waiting for him to suddenly do it in the future? He never has, therefore he never will. And to believe otherwise is just plain foolish. So move on. Get over it. He's not coming back. And so that's the first thing Peter shows us. He reminds us of what they're trying to do. They're trying to discourage the believers. They're trying to shake their faith. 
pull them away from Jesus Christ to live life for themselves, for their own pleasures and desires. So how does Peter respond to this? What does he say next? How does he rekindle this hope that they had that was so eagerly expecting Jesus to return? What does Peter say next? Well, Peter does a couple of things. There's two ways that he responds. And the first way that Peter responds, number one, is first he shows why what these false teachers are saying is actually wrong. He exposes their lie, right? He uncovers, he unmasks the fallacies or the inaccuracies of their teaching. He shows them why we can very, very clearly reject the things that they say because they're lying to you, they're deceiving you. And he does this starting at verse number five. Look how, look how Peter, pardon me, responds. Verse number five, and we'll read through verse seven. But although that's what these scoffers say, they deliberately forget that long ago by God's word, the heavens did indeed come into being and the earth was formed out of water and by water, verse 6, and by these waters also the world of that time was deluged and destroyed. And so by the same word, the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. And so Peter responds, he says, what are you guys talking about? What do you mean look at history and see that God doesn't do anything? I look at history and I see that God has done something. And he gives two examples of this. Number one is creation. Because what does the Bible tell us happened in creation? He says, or God says in his word, that the earth was formless and void. There was water all over the place. And we don't have time to get too deep theologically into what that means, but let me just say quickly that there's some suggestion that water is actually a symbol of evil and something catastrophically evil actually happened prior to the forming of the earth. So just plant that in your mind. But basically what Jesus or what God does is he reforms the earth, right? He takes what was empty and formless and void and water everywhere and darkness everywhere. He separates it out. He brings order. So God does intervene and he does take what's wrong and make things right. He does take what's bad and evil and make things good. And then you skip forward just a couple of chapters in Genesis chapter 6. God does it again. When? In the days of Noah. Because what was happening in the days of Noah? Things were evil. The Bible tells us the inclination of the heart of every man was all wicked all the time. There is wickedness everywhere. So what does God do? He sends the waters of the flood as waters of judgment to cleanse the world of the sins. He turns the world upside down. He does intervene. And so this idea that God doesn't do stuff like that, well, it just doesn't hold water, no pun intended. Because God literally did that exact same thing long ago. So it's not that God never has, he never will, it's God has. And so we can be certain that he will. There will be a judgment. And that's what Paul, or Peter, pardon me, says in verse number 7. By this same word, just like in those days long ago, the present heaven and earth, they are reserved for that same fire, that same judgment. Christ is coming. The end is coming. God is going to do what he said he's going to do. And so that's the first way that Peter responds. He exposes their lies, right? He exposes their falsehoods. And this isn't, by the way, just a mistake that they made, but he tells us very clearly in verse 5, this was a deliberate 
mistake, right? They had purposely forgotten to mention these details. They're trying to lead people astray. But Peter exposes them. He shows them why they're false in what they say. But there's a second way that Peter responds. There's a second thing that he does. Not only does he expose, expose their lies, but number two, he then illuminates them to the truth. He shows them what God's word actually does say. In other words, he gives them true knowledge, right? Which is what our series is called, what the series is all about. He gives them the true knowledge of what's going on. And this was very, very important because people still had doubts. I mean, yeah, that's great. You you pointed me towards scripture. Yes, God has done these things in the past, but I'm still waiting around. He's still not here. And so there was still this element of, of doubt and wondering if Jesus would really return. And so it's important that Peter also addresses what's going to happen, or he addresses these questions of why Jesus isn't here yet. And so again, there's two things that Peter says, two ways that he responds to this doubt or to this questioning of why Jesus hasn't returned, why it's taking so, 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 so long. Right? And the first thing that Peter says, he says, well, one reason why we can be encouraged is because we have to understand that God's timing is just different from ours. That's why it's taking so long. God's sense of timing, his relationship to time, the way he comprehends and understands and reacts to time is so much different from us because the Bible tells us God is outside of time. So he's not limited by it. We're finite and we're physical. God is infinite. He's spiritual. And so the temporal constraints of time don't apply to God. And Peter says this in a much more easier and digestible way for us in a very famous passage in verses 8 through 9. Look how Peter explains it so much better than what I just said right now. Do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. And so, no, the Lord is not slow in keeping his promises, as some understand slowness. Peter says God is just different from us. He's so much grander and greater than us that this idea of a long time, well, God doesn't consider it to be long. So last week I had a a good weekend. It was fun for me. I took my son Dawson to Cal State Fullerton, and we watched some volleyball, right? For two days, Friday, Saturday, they had like a little tournament going on there. So I took Dawson to watch some volleyball, and, and we had a good time. I think he had a good time. We did a lot of stuff, right? We went to the campus. Some of you guys went to Cal State Fullerton, so you can envision, you know, the, the school and stuff. It was beautiful. We went into the student union building, to the grassy knoll areas, looked around in the gym. He found a, a new dumpster that was amazing because they had stairs where you could actually overlook the dumpster. And he got all this grass and trash and started throwing stuff in there. And if you know my son, you know, like, he lives for that. He's obsessed with trash, right? So we did that. We ate food. We had snacks. We took pictures and videos. It was a lot of fun. But you know what we didn't do? We didn't watch a lot of volleyball, right? I mean, that's why we went, right? Two days of volleyball at Cal State Fullerton at Titan Gymnasium, we barely watched any volleyball. And that's because he doesn't care. He doesn't like that kind of stuff. But I like volleyball. And so on the second night, I was like, you know what? we got to watch some, right? I can't take him out here. I mean, part of why I wanted to bring him was to expose him to volleyball, to kind of introduce him to the joys and passions that I have. And so I kind of made a deal with him. I said, Dawson, all right, look, 10 minutes, all right? Sit down next to Dad. 
don't say anything, just watch the volleyball for 10 minutes. And if you do, I'll buy you a churro. So immediately, like, he starts to negotiate. He's like, no, two minutes, right? Because that's what he does. Like, always trying to, like, push the envelope, trying to get more out of it. We had settled on five minutes, okay? Five minutes. He's a, he's a tough negotiator, kind of like Ethan's song with fantasy football, just a tough, tough negotiator. But Dawson, you know, somehow got me to get that number down, and so we set five minutes. So I got my phone, set the alarm, and we sat there for five minutes. And I kid you not, like after like three seconds, he started to complain, like, oh my gosh, this is so long. What is, can, can we, is it over now? Can we go? Can we go outside? I mean, he couldn't sit still for like 10 seconds. And I'm like, hey, do you want the churro or not? And it was a big churro. He's like, okay, fine. But he is like, you know, fidgeting around, like hitting me, like trying to step on me, trying to go up. I'm like, no, 10, or was it five, five minutes? And finally, like, this bell rings, the five minutes goes off, and the first words out of his mouth, like, literally, this is what he said, that was too long. It was five minutes. It was five minutes. But for him, it was too long. But I kind of understand. I mean, he's four years old. He knows nothing about what he's watching. He has no comprehension of what's going on. But for me, I do know, right? I mean, I play a little volleyball. I love volleyball. I know exactly what's going on. For me, five minutes was too short. I wanted like an hour at least to watch the full game. But we have two people dealing with the same exact amount of time, looking at the same exact situation, but two completely different perceptions. For one person, it's so long. For another person, it's so short. And so it is with us and God. The same exact amount of time, the same scenario and situation, but God is just so much grander, so much greater, so much wiser. He's so much better than us in so many ways that what seems like a long time for us is just the blip on the radar for him. And so that's the first thing that Peter encourages his believers with. It's not that God forgot or it's not like something's going on that he got held up. God just knows what he's doing. And his sense of time is not like ours. A thousand years for him is just a day. Whereas for us, a day feels like a thousand years. And so that's the first thing that Peter says. The sense of time, right? It's different for God than it is for us. So stay patient. Stay waiting. Well, there's a second thing that Peter says. A second reason why this delay is happening, why they've been waiting all these years and Jesus hasn't yet returned. And that is because God is simply merciful and patient. It's because God is compassionate and kind. It's because he's generous and overflowing with love. And so it's out of this love, that's the reason why Jesus hasn't come back yet. Why? Because he's deliberately, purposely waiting for more people to be saved. Jesus is intentionally withholding his return so that more of God's children can come to a saving knowledge of him. And that's basically what Peter says next in the next part of verse number 9. So let's look there together. So he has just said the Lord is not slow as some understand slowness, but what? Instead, he is patient with you. Why is he patient? Because he does not want anyone to perish but for everyone to come to repentance. Amen. And that is the love of God. He is waiting for more people. It's a gift to all of humanity. He's giving us an extension, if you would, 
You know, as we said in the beginning, like flight delays can be the worst, right? For me, it ruined our weekend plans. We weren't able to go and hang out and celebrate our anniversary and Dawson's birthday. Flight delays are horrible, but sometimes they can also be very, very good, right? I remember a few years ago, uh, Christina and I, we went to San Francisco. This was long ago, like before we got married. And it was supposed to be just a quick day trip. Go out in the morning, come back at night. So we got like the last flight out in the evening to come back home. My sister was living up there at the time. So it was kind of like a, a two-fold trip. Go and visit her, hang out with her, but also see the sights of the city. Well, we had a good time in San Francisco. It was time to go home. When I realized, I don't know how this happened, but somehow I just misread the time on the ticket, right? I thought the flight was like 9 o'clock. It was actually 8 o'clock. So I was like an hour behind schedule. And by the time I like checked to like figure this out, it was like way too late. But we tried to get there anyway, just hoping that you know, maybe something happened, we could go. So my sister quickly dropped us off at the airport. We went through security and like literally, we're like sprinting through the, the airport. Like, <laughs> it was literally the most stressed I've ever been like at an airport, you know, when you're like an hour behind schedule to catch the plane because you misread the stupid ticket. So we're, we're running there, and then we get to the gate, and there's, like, no one there. There's, like, one lady. It's the one that whoever was working the gate. I said, oh, did the plane leave already? She's like, yep, just left. What's your names? And I said, oh, Peter and Christina. She goes, yeah, we waited for you guys. <laughs> we even called your name on the intercom. Peter, Christina, your flight is about to leave. Please report to gate, whatever, whatever. But they said we could only wait for so long. Eventually, we had to take off. And so they did. Closed the door, took off. And we were stuck there in San Francisco for another night, which kind of sucked because we didn't pack anything. It was a one-day trip, right? So we didn't have, like, toiletries or clothes or anything like that. I had to get to work the next morning. So we had to stay the night at my sister's apartment. She had to drop us back off at, like, 5 or 6 in the morning, and we had to fly in on the next flight. But you know what? We really could have used the delay. That would have been nice. That would have been a good thing. One or two hours extra? Oh, man, that would have been a godsend. Well, here's the thing. God knows that we need a delay, too. But not just one or two hours. One or two thousand years. <laughs> because that's literally about how long it's been. It's been a couple thousand years. But God knows. And so in his love, he's waiting because that plane of salvation, it's been reserved. The names have been printed on that ticket, but not everyone has boarded. And so God's holding up that plane. He's calling the names. He's waiting for everyone to get on board so we can take off and go with him to be with him in all of eternity. God waits. But here's the thing, my friends. He will not wait forever. Eventually, that door will close and the plane will take off. And so Peter says this in verse number 10. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar, and the elements will be destroyed by fire, and the earth and everything done in it will be laid bare. Make no mistake, it will happen. Christ will come, and when he does, when he does, it will be the end. So what does this mean for us today? our last question for the day. How does that impact us? How does that affect us? How does that change us? Well, that's what Peter says next. He says, in light of this, 
now equipped with this knowledge and strength that we have to know that indeed Jesus is coming. There is a way that we should be impacted. How? We should be highly motivated to live a life that is truly pleasing and honoring to him. We should be compelled to live blamelessly and righteously. We should desire with everything that we have in us to want to obey God and be faithful to him. And that's what Peter says in the next two verses. Since everything will be destroyed, he says, what kind of people ought we to be? You ought to be holy and live a holy and godly life as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. So how does it impact us? Peter says, you ought to live holy and godly. I remember a couple years ago, this was probably five, six years ago, uh, my wife, Christina, she, this was before we had Dawson, before he was born. She went to India, right? She went there for about 10 days, and she went on a mission trip. So I was left home all alone for 10 days. No kid, no nothing. And so, man, I lived like a bachelor, right? <laughs> I didn't make the bed. My food wrappers and boxes everywhere, because I wasn't cooking, ordering food, like boxes everywhere, trash everywhere, didn't clean the kitchen, didn't clean the bathroom, laundry wasn't done. The, the pillows on the couches were like all over the floor. It just lived like a, like a guy without a wife because that's what I was for 10 days. But soon those 10 days were coming to an end and I knew she was going to return. So what did I do on that ninth day? I cleaned the house. I cleaned up good. <laughs> Vacuum, laundry, all that. The, you know, cleaned the mirror in the bathroom, the water spots, all the little details. I cleaned up. Now why did I do that? Well, two reasons. Number one, because I didn't want her to yell at me and get mad at me, right? I wanted her to be like, you're a slob, you're dirty, you're messy. What are you doing 10 days and this is what you do to the house? So I didn't want her to look at me and think poorly of me and bad of me. But number two, and probably more important than that, because I wanted to please her, because I love her. And I want her to come home to a clean house, because we love that, right? You go away for a while on a trip or a vacation, you get homesick, and you want to come back to a clean house. I think there's some people who do this. They actually clean before a vacation just so that when they get back, it's nice. Any of you guys do that? Okay, just my wife then? All right, some people do that. She's like that. She loves coming home to a clean house. And because I wanted to please her and because I love her, I cleaned up. And Peter's basically saying, look, it's the same thing, because Jesus is coming back. And when he does, we don't want him to look into our eyes and look into our hearts and see all this mess and chaos of our lives because we didn't care when we lived however we wanted to live. No, 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 we're not going to want that at all. But because we love him, we're going to want to honor him and please him, right? We're going to want Jesus to look into our eyes and to look into our lives and say, oh, my child, mm, I'm so, so pleased. All that you did for me, in my name, and for my sake, I see all of that. And I am so, so pleased. Right? We're going to want that. We're going to want Jesus to come back. And we're going to want him to look into our eyes, to look into our hearts, and see all that we did for him, all the sacrifices that we made. And that's what he will do. Jesus will look at you and say, all those times after church, when everyone went home and you stayed late to clean the floors, 
to throw out the trash in the bathroom. I saw that, and I see it now. All those times, all those seasons, all those years that you volunteered in the toddler and infant ministry at church because no one else wanted to do it, but there was a need, and you did it. And not only did you do it, but you poured your heart into it. And you loved those babies like they were your own babies. I saw that. And I still see it now. And all the prayers, oh, the prayers. The hours and hours and hours that you spent on your knees praying for your family, friends, for your students. I see that. The hours that you spent on your knees praying for customers at work that you barely knew, for missionaries and countries that you've never met, for children around the world that you've never seen. But because you wanted them to know me, I see that. And my friends, here's the truth. God will return. Jesus will come back. And when he does, may he see at his second coming that we truly did make him our first priority. Amen.